This episode is supported by Manscaped. Manscaped have kindly agreed to continue sponsoring the podcast. You can use our promo code GTM to receive 20% off all products and free worldwide shipping. If you've not heard of Manscaped before, they're now the leading company in male grooming. Their products range from face razors to nose trimmers and their famous lawnmower 3.0, which is a product specifically designed for in and around your never regions, so you no longer have to worry about snagging the bag. As a listener of Go In The Match, you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with our promo code GTM. Head over to www.manscaped.com to have a look at all their range of products to grab yourself an absolute bargain. Welcome back to the Go In The Match podcast. Today I'm joined by Sammy James. Sammy is a match-going Fulham fan and also the founder and one of the hosts of Fulhamish, a dedicated Fulham podcast. Sammy, thanks for giving me your time today, mate, and coming on the podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure, Mike. Thank you for asking me. Nice to be asked to be on a non-Fulham publication for once. <laughs> okay, so I want you to take us back to your childhood and growing up a Fulham fan. Where were you born and how did your love for Fulham Football Club begin? So my um, interest in Fulham is a bit different to kind of your classic, my dad was a fan, so I was a fan story. Um, first 10 years of my life, I had very little interest in football. Um, wasn't really around it. My dad wasn't a football fan. And I think now this is something that I'm not really necessarily that proud to say, but if I'm being truly honest, if I supported anyone at school, I supported Man United. <laughs> which I know Mike you're a Liverpool fan and you will look down on me rightfully for that and I remember watching the 99 Champions League final I must have been about seven I remember watching that it's the only memory of supporting United um so there was obviously an interest in football but it was never really strong I wouldn't have known whether United won the league didn't win the league I guess they mixture of too young and I don't know just didn't care that much yeah. and then I was 10 and a colleague of my mum supported Fulham and my mum said oh John's asked if you want to go to the Fulham game tomorrow and I remember being like oh really that sounds crap (laughs) but I went I went I don't know if I was forced or whatever a bit too young to remember but I went along it was Fulham's first season um, in the premiership as it was known at the time and it was uh, again game against Southampton I remember we won it 2-0 um, we were in the Riverside stand at the, at, at the Craven Cottage. It, when it, it was before Craven Cottage was all seaters. It was the last season at Craven Cottage with standing terraces behind the Hammersmith end and the Putney end. And I loved it. Absolutely just fell in love with it. Maybe it was the roar of the crowd. I think I was a pretty malleable fan. I probably been, could have been taken to any ground and I would have just been overawed by it. But may, But also I think... Now I've been to Craven Cottage and realised that not every ground is like that. I think I was just swept up in it straight away. And I came back home and I wanted to go to the next game. So I went to the next game, which was Everton, and we won again, which always helps, I think, when you're trying to um, breed in a new young fan. And I went to my dad afterwards. I said, can I change teams? Can I be a Fulham fan? (laughs) And I never forget, he gave me a really sinister, stern talk. He was kind of as if I was like dating a girl or something. And he was like, (laughs) I just need you to know, Sammy, that this is a really important commitment. You can't just you can't back out of this. You can't change teams in two months time because people will laugh at you. So if you're sure about this, then you can do this. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, okay, Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm a Fulham fan. And that was it. I was obsessed. I like had everything Fulham, the duvet, the shirt. I was all I talked about at school 
I was a nerd for the results. I knew every Fulham player. I had like a book of all the Fulham players that I wrote myself. I was just infatuated by Fulham. And and it never really stopped, really. Like I I went through years, maybe at university, where I cared a little bit less about it, but still went to away games and home games and stuff. And yeah, it just grew and grew. And eventually my dad, who had no real interest in football, became a Fulham fan as well. And so when I got my first season ticket, like 15, um, he got one with me and has had one with me ever since. And we went to Europe when we had the European run together. We've always kind of gone to Fulham fat matches together. I now sometimes go to away games without him because he's not really that interested in traveling the length and breadth of the country. But we've done a lot of ways as well. Anfield, Old Trafford, City, Manchester, St. James's Park. Um, we've done a lot of those together and it's been something that my, my, my dad and I will always cherish, but it's such a weird way around that I got him into it, not yeah, yeah. like him into me, which is, this is the mo- the way that most people kind of find their football clubs, isn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting to be fair. I'd say the majority of fans in general and probably guests I've had on here, like you say, it's usually your dad's perspective or someone within the family or uncle, whoever it may be, will get you into that club. So it's like, I think that's quite good though. It's quite different and it, and that you've obviously both made a bond with the club and, you know, that's like your time together to go and follow the club. Obviously, when you were getting into Fulham then, who'd your sort of players that you'd idolise at that age coming through? Who would you sort of watch and get off, like that player that'd get you off your seat? Um, so that first team in the Premiership was, was a remarkable team and littered with kind of players that are now in Fulham folklore. I didn't know it at the time. But looking back, it was a pretty special team. Um, so you had Steve Malbronk, was probably the one that rolls off the tongue, and Louis Boamorte as well, two exceptional players. And of course, we had Louis Saha, who was a, a wonderful goal scorer for Fulham, left in not the best circumstances to United, the way he forced that transfer, kind of soured the taste. But I think now, retrospectively, everyone looks back at Louis Saha and thinks... <laughs> the best team in the world wanted at the time wanted your main striker like who were Fulham to say no to him but it was maybe just the way he threw his toys out the pram at the end which soured it um and of course Edwin van der Sar was was in goal uh there were some remarkable players in that in that first few years that I supported the club and maybe didn't realize how lucky I was and Fulham fans that have been there for 40 years would never have seen players like Edwin van der Sar. Yeah, I just kind of thought that was normal that Fulham would have a player of, of his calibre and his ability. And even now I'm like, wow, like we had Edwin van der Sar as goalkeeper. I mean, it was heady days at Fulham. Alf had wanted to be Manchester United of the South and he had grand plans to build a 50,000 seater stadium at Craven Cottage. How he planned on doing that, I, if you've ever been there, I don't really understand still to this day. But it was a time where I Fulham genuinely thought that we could be top four contenders and we were like going to be the new man city, but quite quickly Alfa had realized that actually to be successful in football, you don't need to be a millionaire. You need to be a billionaire and, and very, very fast. The kind of finances required to compete at the top, top level just outgrew what he was capable of doing, even though he owned Harrods and was a very, very wealthy man. Um, but yeah, some of those players were fantastic. Louis Boamorte, for me, my particular favourite. Just one of those players who ran to, ran to the death. Like he never gave up a, a loose ball and would so often just produce something out of nothing. And you're like, wow, how did you keep that in? How did you do that? Just had two magic feet, could go around anyone um, and was full of passion as well. So yeah, Boamorte, probably my standout, but there was a lot to choose from. 
So have you got any sort of memories from going to Craven Cottage for the first time and you sort of the whole match day experience? Have you got any good stories or memories you can share with us? I don't know if there's anything that like particularly stands out, but obviously Craven Cottage was just so different then. And I wish I'd have had longer to kind of take it in as to what Craven Cottage used to be with those standing terraces and home fans behind either goal and um, away fans in the enclosure, which is now the Johnny Haynes stand. And I, I just remember that actually towards the end of that season, Fulham fans were getting quite angry about the thought of having to leave Craven Cottage and move to Loftus Road for two years. And I didn't really understand it. And uh, we then moved to Loftus Road the year after. And I quite like Loftus Road. I thought it was cool. I was like, oh, this is quite a nice stadium. We've played quite well there. And I just didn't realise as a 10-year-old what a big deal it was playing at Queen's Park Rangers' ground and how actually it wasn't a nice ground. It isn't a nice ground. Why did I enjoy going there? Because I was 10 and I didn't know any different. Yeah. And now I see that that, for, that if some Fulham fans refuse to go. Like, then that's how strongly they felt about Fulham playing at Loftus Road is they refused to go to games. It's... It's like Liverpool going and playing at Everton. I, I know that's a big, like, dramatic example, but it's not far off in terms of West London sport. And yeah. I, I think you're just so naive as a young fan to, to the real problems that kind of like actual Fulham fans that have been going for years and how that was such an awful thing to have done. And that back to the cottage, the big protests were happening all behind the scenes, all whilst I was just there as a 10 year old enjoying it. Cause I thought it was just fun. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got to say, I've been doing this podcast now for a little over six months. And so this is the third series that we're on. And honestly, the amount of people that I ask when they come on your favorite away ground, you'll be, I was, I'm always amazed by always people will say Craven cottage is their favorite away ground. So as a Fulham fan for yourself, I just wanted to know what, what you think it is that away fans enjoy coming to Craven Cottage for and enjoying the experience. Well, quite often it's because they get three points, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. That's probably a big part of why they actually quite enjoy it because we can be quite shit, particularly <laughs> in the Premier League. Um, I, it's everything about it, isn't it? It is the perfect away day that you look for kind of when, when you're when you're looking one up. It's um, in a nice part of the city. There's tons of pubs. It's quite amenable to away fans as well. Like a lot of the pubs that are by the tube stations at Craven Cottage are away fan pubs. The whole thing is well set up. And it's a bit of a gripe of Fulham fans. Sometimes you're like, why are they all these pubs bloody away fans? Why do none of them accept home fans? And sometimes it's hard to get into a pub as a home fan around Craven Cottage. And that's why a lot of a lot of Fulham fans choose to drink further out than actually the away fans um, will. But it's ever, it, like, so you have just a nice location generally. Who doesn't like an afternoon in West London? It's just a fun place to be, right? But then the walk through Bishop's Park or whatever way really you go to Craven Cottage, even if you come down from Hammersmith, which is the less famous route to go to the cottage, is along the river and it's just really pristine and everyone's just having a beer and a laugh in the park and a bit of a sing song and then you get into the ground it's old-fashioned it's turnstiles it's a throwback to yesteryear and if you're one of these clubs that has a Meccano stadium and and it's um everything's by e-tickets and stuff you go through those rickety old turnstiles into a ground that's still made out of brick and it's so beautiful 
and then you get to the ground itself and it's picturesque it's it's four stands in the traditional way you're close to the action I know that Fulham fans aren't historically the loudest, but I still think it's a hell of an atmosphere in there, especially when it's at capacity and when it's a big game. And um, and it's only going to get when this new stands built because it's looking the absolute bollocks, uh, I'll be honest. And it's going to be the kind of cherry on top for what is already a, one, a wonderful ground. And it's just unique, right? It's so much of football these days since clubs have moved to new stadia is all the same what's how different is pride park to the king power yeah the seats are black the seats one seat's got blue one seat's are blue and one seat's black that, that's not far off the difference yeah they can jazz it up with flags or some quirky way of doing the step but it's all the same and yet you come to craven cottage and all of the great stadia just have something that's unique about it, whether it's just because it's exceptionally big or it's got an exceptional atmosphere. And Craven Cottage is just exceptionally beautiful. And it, it, it's a throwback to yesteryear. And of course it's modern now and there's no standing terraces and, and things like that. But people still just feel like they're, they're going back in time, I think, when they go to Craven Cottage. And and it's friendly as well. That's I guess that's another thing to be said. It's not a hostile place to visit you're not going there expecting trouble you're just there going for a nice day out like people go to Cheltenham for a nice day out they go to Fulham they know they're going to have a few um pints in the park and they're going to watch some football in a picturesque place so that I think is why it's so amenable to away fans but it's why we love it as well and Fulham is Craven Cottage and it's not the same for other clubs if, if if Fulham ever left and I don't think they will now that's the one great thing about the new stand I don't think I'd be interested in going anymore. And that's why people were so upset when we moved to Loftus Road all those years ago, because I think they felt like if Fulham's not at Craven Cottage, then it's not Fulham. It's just a team that plays in black and white. And it, it, it's just another football team. And, and I think that's what makes Craven Cottage so special. And it, it has to be preserved forever. And, and thank God that the current ownership, they're not perfect. But they've said from day one that staying at Craven Cottage was their top priority. And that's that's the best thing. Yeah, I think I, I did a West Ham episode not so long ago and we talked mm. about moving to London, uh, the London Stadium and how like the teething problems they've had there, Arsenal moving to the Emirates. And I think when you always see Craven Cottage, you feel like there's a nostalgic still a feel to that very much a bit like Goodison as well I know Everton are moving soon and that might be an issue for them but I think like you've said there it's, it's been a it's going to be a good success to keep that nostalgic feel and that's probably another reason why away fans enjoy it so much something else I was actually thinking about then is am I right in saying I might be wrong so correct me but is there a, is there a neutral um section within the ground as well so this is a bit of a myth. It's not a myth. There was. And I don't think there really is anymore. Okay. The neutral section was a necessity. Not actually. Well, it was kind of a necessity. Basically, the, the way that the ground was built is so tight that it was impossible in the Putney end to have segregated fans. You, it was physically an impossibility. So either Fulham would have to give all 6,000 seats in that end. It's a big end to away fans. And whilst that's not a problem for the biggest teams, actually most teams can't take 6,000 fans to, to a bog average game at Craven Cottage. That's quite a lot of away fans. And so Fulham either had the choice of, right. Okay. Either we 
lose all these seats and have like 4,000 empty seats every game or let's be creative about this and create a neutral end and the Premier League approved that away fans and neutral fans could mix now obviously the neutral end was a mixture of Fulham fans that couldn't get a ticket for the home end and and often it was an overspill for away fans which often led to really differing sizes of crowds and when Liverpool United Chelsea came to town it was just a completely full away end yeah and then when it was your Wiggins Blackburns they sold these tickets at like a tenner a pop and they filled it with kind of Fulham and new fans and we used to be a club that had 5,000 fans, right? Rattling around Craven Cottage. And then suddenly we had a 25,000 seater stadium and we didn't really have that fan base to fill it. Fan bases take time. Yeah. Like you can't just suddenly find, you know, MK Dons and all the new clubs have found this. You can't just find 50,000 fans. Um, and it was a necessity for a few years. And I think it was a clever marketing trick. And I think there are lots of people who are now genuine bona fide Fulham fans who maybe only came to Fulham because of the neutral end yeah. and because it was a, it was a, it was a safe place that people could go where they didn't feel like they were worried about segregation and you know, the, 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 the overhangs of the eighties and nineties and hooliganism, hooliganism were still there at the early two thousands and families didn't feel safe to go to football. And, and I think the neutral end helped a few families that maybe wouldn't have gone otherwise. So a lot of people love to like kind of give a stick about the neutral end and rightly so like it's a neutral end of football I, I totally get it I'm not like here like Mr Buzzkill I can see why we got <laughs> taking the mickey out of but also it was a really clever bit of a making sure we sold all our seats and b introducing some new fans I know we talked about this on my podcast Fulham Mission two or three of the guys that are involved in Fulham Mission said that they first went to Fulham because of the neutral end and actually, that's a genius bit of marketing. And hopefully with the new stand, though, because they're opening up a lot more and there's going to be more access points to various bits of the grounds, the neutral end will be a relic of time gone past. And I think for the better for it. We, we Fulham have a now a big enough fan base to fill the ground with Fulham fans. Obviously, you'll still have a selection of away, away fans, but like Fulham is big enough now and, and has substantially grown. Like the fan base is a lot bigger than it used to be. We always used to get taken the mickey out of because we'd like 200 people would turn up to Anfield. And now, okay, we don't, it's not, they don't go lightly fast away tickets, but general, more often than not, we take a, you know, a sizable amount of fans to games. And yeah. that's a nice thing as well, because it used to be quite disheartening when you go to an away game and there was like 300 of you there but in a way it was the glory days as well but also it's quite nice now to go to a game and know that you're not going to get the piss ripped out of you with people saying did you turn up in a mini bass like <laughs> and all that stuff so touching on away days now have you got any sort of particular grounds that you've enjoyed going to over the years I mean, the Europa days were the, were the absolute halcyon days for Fulham. Like, going away in Europe is just the best. And my favourite of all time was going to Basel, St. Jakob Park in Basel. Um, it was about 10 days before Christmas and it was freezing. It was like minus 10. It was bitter. My dad and I went... Um, <laughs> And the Christmas markets were out and everyone was drinking in the square, filled the Irish bars and stuff. And the best part of the story of that day is Fulham won 3-2. It was a group game decider, sixth match of a group stage. And 
it was that Fulham had to win to get through and Basel had to either win or draw. So it was like, it was like a cup tie almost. Rome were already through and I think CSKA Sofia were fourth. So it was a battle for second. Um, Fulham won 3-2. It was amazing. And we went 2-0 up in the first half. Bobby Zamora got both goals. And the first goal, and I was like maybe 17, 18, not done like a huge amount of heavy drinking in my time. And especially <laughs> not with my dad, especially not with my dad. Um, and I didn't really, couldn't control my bladder, basically. So I think this sounds weird, but like got to the 40th minute and I was desperate. I couldn't hold any longer. I was like, dad, I got to go. And I went and midway, Bobby Zamora scored. I've, I've traveled 2000 miles to my first ever European away game and I've missed the fucking goal. <laughs> and so I kind of like, I actually don't think I'd even gone to the loo by this point. I was still in the queue. So I ran back outside to kind of see the celebrations. And my dad was up there laughing his head off because Sammy's missed the goal. I was like, oh, fuck it. I've missed it. Anyway, I went back to the loo because I still needed it. He scored again two minutes later and I'm still in the loo. We're 2-0 up away from home in the in Europe and I've missed both the goals. <laughs> my dad was beside himself laughing thank god we scored a third in the second half and i actually did see a goal because i don't think i'd have lived it down to anyone that i traveled all that way to miss both the goals um away days in england um you know what some of the championship ones are fun like yeah there's the big ones you know i, I remember first going to anfield and like hairs in the back of your neck when walk alone is is sung and I've been to Goodison, I've been to Old Trafford and yeah, they're, they're amazing grounds to visit and they're so big and it's, it's, it's eye-opening, but some of my favourites are just the random away days in the championship. Um, Oakwell, a particular highlight for me when we went and beat Barnsley 2-1 with two goals in the last uh, 10 minutes to win, to win the game and a massive game in promotion. And it was maybe two or 3000 of us in an end that could have taken seven or 8,000. And we would, we all like ran down to the front when uh, I think it was Ryan Sessignon who scored in the last minute um, for us. And I, I, they're the ones that whilst I love the premier league, you miss because yeah. those away days are just magic. Um, Rotherham, another good one, like a random little stadium in the South of Yorkshire, um, Burton Albion, all those grounds are why being in the championship is fun to a point. Obviously, you don't want to be there forever. But yeah, they're they're the ones that always stick in your mind. And it's always some ropey weather spoons in a place that you would just never dream of visiting if it wasn't for football. So you touched on there about um, the Europa League and the run that you had there. And that was, was something I was going to bring up. Um, so it's quite interesting to get your thoughts on that. Obviously, you got to the final of the Europa League. Uh, under Roy Hodgson uh, in the 9 10 season, I think I'm right in saying. Um, yeah. Obviously a great achievement for the club and a great ride for, for yourselves as, as a fan base as well. But how big was that for the club to go on that journey as fans? And and obviously you didn't win it, but how big would that have been if you'd have won a European Cup? Oh, I still think about that day. I still, I still think that whilst everything was amazing, the whole experience and whilst winning, it wasn't the most important thing. I just, you kick yourself because that Atletico side were there to be beaten that day. And, and we just kind of not bottled it, but things just didn't fall our way in the final. We didn't play as well as we had done during the whole competition, but yeah, the Europa League run was massive absolutely gigantic and it put Fulham on the map I really still think I think it did and 
Fulham was in danger of just being another one of these also-ran teams in the Premier League. Like the equivalent of Palace now. What have Palace really done since they've come up to the Premier League? Like they finished 13th every year. So did we. That's what Fulham was. And actually that whole period was defined by the fact that we made the Europa League final. We did something that not many other clubs other than Middlesbrough, who also had that random run to the um, UEFA Cup final, have ever done. And But Middlesbrough did it. Middlesbrough was special because they kept going 4-0 down and deciding that's the way, that was the time to win it, which was a quite a special thing. But the calibre of teams that Fulham beat on the way, Shakhtar Donetsk, Juventus, Wolfsburg, who were German champions, and then Hamburg, who were, were no were hosting the final and, and were desperate to play a final in their host city. It was a, And we played Roma in the group stages. Like it was an incredible run of teams that Fulham beat and obviously culminating in that Juventus game that um, Dempsey chipped over the, the Juventus goalkeeper. I think it was Kamini, not Buffon. Um, you know, Cannavaro getting sent off. Like these things don't happen to Fulham. It was like a night at Anfield. And... and you might think, oh, yeah, Craven Cottage can never be like Anfield. That night we beat Juventus and the night we beat Hamburg, it was. It really was. It was magic evening European nights in the second leg where it, where anything can happen and and miracles can happen in those kind of situations. And oppositions fall apart because of the atmosphere. And, yeah, it it, it just announced to the world that Fulham were more than just this team that were there to make up the numbers in the Premier League. And it would have meant so much if we'd have won, I think. But I don't think it would have made a huge difference. It would have been one for the trophy cabinet. It would have been one to brag about in pub debates. But ultimately, the journey was the most important thing. And and Fulham fans got to experience something that so many other teams haven't. Even quite good teams haven't got to experience European finals. West Ham haven't got to experience European wing finals in, in kind of modern times. And I know like clubs going back, like even like Villa and Forest did in the seventies, but we've done it this side of the millennia and we'll always have that. And we'll always have that day against Atletico. And it was a real shame we didn't win, but also the journey was the most important thing. And we still all talk about it now. So it's um, coming up to 11 years from the Aventus game and everyone on the 18th of March will still be talking about, oh, 11 years ago today, we beat Juventus. And I hope one day that we can go back in Europe and recreate some memories like that. But I think we're also just really proud to have done it. And like playing in Europe is not easy. It, you know, people like go, oh, yeah, it's just the Europa League. Like how many teams have gone to Europe and failed every time? Everton. When's the last time Everton did anything good in Europe? I, I, obviously, I know back in the day but like in recent times every time they enter the Europa League they either go out in the group stage or the, or the round of 32 to Stour Bucharest like it's not as easy as it looks to, to go on that kind of run in Europe and play well in the Premier League and we somehow managed it that season and yeah it was it was the it was the journey of our lives so I sort of put myself in your shoes now as a Fulham fan for me personally I think I'd actually enjoy the journey that the club's been on over the last couple of years. And what I mean by that, I mean, you've been promoted and relegated multiple times now from the Premier League over the last, like, five years. Um, yeah. see a bit of a roller coaster of emotion as a fan, I can imagine. I think that you'd, I think I'd, I'd enjoy the sense of, of, of that going on that journey. 
I don't know if you yourself would agree with that or does your fan base would they be quite happy to just be cemented as a mid-table team in the Premier in the Premier League like you've touched on Crystal Palace there like what have they really done is what is the sense of, of your fan base do they enjoy the journey or would they rather just be cemented in that Premier League position that's a great question and one that we've been we, we talked about on Fulhamish only a few weeks ago and someone posed the question of saying you know would you like mid-table mediocrity for a few years would we enjoy that and and I think we all answered yes because we're all just quite tired like it's yeah. it's been exhausting to be a Fulham fan for the last seven and don't get me wrong we needed this as a club we, we were in the Premier League for 13 years we had a couple of fights against relegation we obviously had the European highs but other than that like a lot of it was finishing 12th and 13th and there's maybe just an apathy in the fan base of you know, and the same thing happened season after season. We went to all the big six clubs away and we lost. We always won a few games at home and we always managed to keep ourselves above water. But then the season we got relegated, we've either been in a relegation battle or a promotion battle every season since 2014. So that's six, seven years, because although we were in the championship for four years consecutively, the first two years were relegation battles to League one because we went down so far that we genuinely, it was a battle to stay in the championship. And then obviously we turned it around and then it was two years of promotion. We got playoffs one year, then we got playoffs the second year and actually won them, then relegated, then playoffs winning again. And then this season again has been a battle against relegation and hopefully it's a fruitful one this time. And, and at, at the time of recording, it's, it's looking good. Um, and I think we'd all quite enjoy two or three years of finishing 12th and going out in the fifth round of the cup. It's not particularly glamorous. It's not particularly fun, but right now I think we take it. But of course, one day, if that all does happen, one day will come where the fans are saying, is this it? Is this all we get? Are we ever going to challenge for the top four? Are we ever going to challenge for the top six? Are we ever going to try and go on a cup run? And I used to remember feeling those times whether you actually had a successful season depended on the draw you got in the cup. And I mean, it used to be fuming a couple of times we went out in the Carabao Cup after the third round because I was thinking, that's it then. We're out the Carabao, probably not going to win the FA Cup. Here's another season of finishing 13th. Yeah. And that's the problem with the structure of the Premier League as it is. You will always get teams that sit in this bubble. However, I do have a bit of a philosophy that the championship comes to get you after a while. No team ever stays in 13th perpetually. I think Fulham were one of the longest to do it, 13 years in the top flight of not doing that much. It will come to get Crystal Palace, you know, Crystal Palace and now the team that you kind of see in that are we're just middle of the road. And it will come to get them because it always, always does. Only seven teams seem to have a kind of weird divine right to be in the Premier League. And somehow Everton are that team as well. I don't really know how they've avoided it over the years. They just have. And I, th but I think from, from a Fulham perspective, we would quite enjoy just a couple of years. Let's see what we can actually do in the Premier League. And we've got wealthy new owners who can't invest because of when you go down and up, up and down and up, the financial fair play implications mean you're kind of hampered on what you can spend. And I think we'd all be interested to see what our very wealthy billionaire owner can do with a couple of years of mid-table kind of money from the Premier League. Actually 
could he dip into his pockets and make us challenge for the top six? I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility, considering he's spending £100 million on a stand and he's always said he's willing to invest, that he actually might do that. But of course, I do think he's the kind of owner that would be just very happy to keep us at 10th and kind of fund that. And one day we'll have to decide as a fan base whether that's enough for us. So, as I mentioned at the start of the pod, you're the founder of uh, Fulhamish, which is a dedicated Fulham podcast. Is that something you've always wanted to do? And how did you get into setting that up? Um, I wouldn't say it was like a burning desire since like I was 10 or something. I, I wanted to get, I'm, I work in radio. So I got into radio when I went to university because I joined student radio and I loved it. And initially I never actually had a plan to do anything with Fulham. I kind of was like, I'm a Fulham fan and I do radio. I was kind of so focused on getting into music radio. And then I left university and I was looking for work and Fulham had like a radio service. This is the days before kind of like ubiquitous streaming everywhere. And if you didn't make a Fulham game and it wasn't on the telly and we were in the championship at the time, that was the only sometimes there genuinely wasn't a stream like it's not like oh it's, it's hard to find one sometimes there was no stream and listening on kind of fulham's online radio service was the only way and in my final year of uni i put together a little audio tape and sent it to fulham and said i'd love to present your kind of half-time coverage because there wasn't any it was just a commentator who would pick up the mic two minutes before the game <laughs> hello everyone welcome to ashton gate yeah, for Bristol City versus Fulham. And then at half time, he just plonked the mic on the table and turned off the feed. So there was just 10 minutes of silence. And I was like, I'll fill that 10 minutes of silence for you. Just, just get me in. I don't, I don't even want much money. Just, just, just get me in. And they somehow went for it. I was kind of shocked. I was just straight out of uni. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, and I did it for a year. And I got quite frustrated in that role though, because I quickly realised naively you can't say what you want when you work for the club I went on the first day and I said I wouldn't have made that substitution at half time and someone from the club emailed me and said what the hell are you doing I was like what do you mean what the hell am I doing we shouldn't have taken off Matt Smith after the, in the 60th minute that was a crazy substitution he's like you can't just be going on like slagging off the substitute that the decisions of the manager on the official Fulham service and I was like oh Okay. And the more, you know, there was a few other reasons as well, but I also just saw that there wasn't a huge amount of podcasting for Fulham. There wasn't a huge amount of content out there. And, and that kind of whole wave of everyone having a podcast was just in its infancy then. And there was a Fulham podcast, a very good one called Cottage Talk, run by a guy called Russ who lives in the States. And it was a, it was a fantastic offering. I was just like, I'd like to do one from my perspective. And with my background of working in radio, I had access to a studio um, where I worked and I knew a few people who I kind of thought would be good for it and all worked in central London where I did and would be up for recording it and a couple of people then got in contact with me to say I'd be up for doing it so there was a couple of people I knew and a couple of people I didn't um, and we all just got behind a microphone and chatted and, and put it out there and, and it was a real quick success because there wasn't a huge amount there was not there was only one podcast in the market there was no YouTube channel there were a few blogs and, and people just like kind of lapped it up and and we kind of have ridden the wave ever since and everyone that was there the kind of was five of us initially that it started with and those five are all still here but now there's another 20 people that kind of regularly contribute to the podcast the youtube channel and the blog and 
it takes up an awful lot of my time um, running it, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I realized the privileged position I'm in to have a podcast that is talking about the thing I love Fulham and also is genuinely listened to by a considerable amount of people. And I, and I think it's very easy to be in this position and overlook that and neglect that and think, oh yeah, it's just Fulham. It's just, just a Fulham podcast. Yeah, whatever. Um, and, and not do a podcast after you've lost a game because you can't be asked to talk about a defeat. But actually, it's I see it as a bit of responsibility really now. And sometimes that's a burden. Sometimes you don't want to have to do a podcast when you're hungover and you've just lost 3-0 to Derby. But equally, you need to. You've got to suck it up sometimes because then there's good times and we've just beaten Liverpool. I'm sorry to say, Mike. Um, and Monday's podcast was a dream. It was like a real honour to go on there and talk about a famous winner, Anfield, that potentially is going to be a real linchpin where we survive in the Premier League. And, you know, after the playoff finals and all of those great times where you, it's like so much fun to do a podcast is what it's all about. And yeah, there's some crap times as well. But yeah, I, I, I love doing it and I love seeing it grow. It's my little kind of company, my little products that I've made. And selfishly, I've also used it to my advantage as well. When I've gone for other jobs in the industry, they say, oh, what do you do outside of your work? I say, oh, I've made this podcast. Have a look at it. Like people respect that and stuff. So it, it, there is a personal gain to it as well, but also just love the fact that so many Fulham fans are engaged with it and from all around the world as well. That's the crazy thing is like, I think it's actually enjoyed more by people that don't live in the UK than people that do live in the UK because they, some people see it as like an essential access because they don't have anyone in Venezuela, wherever they live, to talk Fulham about. They listen to Fulhamish, and that's 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 the beauty of it. And that's why I think club podcasts will always have a place because there all there will always be people, a, a community that want to listen to like-minded people and don't just want to listen to what journalists have to say about their football club. There's a place for them as well, but there will always be a place, I think, for the kind of more club-specific podcasts. Fantastic. So finally, the podcast is centered around going the match. So of every podcast we're doing, I want to end by asking, what are your top three favorite matches you've ever been to or seen? Well, one that I would have mentioned, but I couldn't attend for obvious reasons, was the most recent playoff final against Brentford, um, which was obviously behind closed doors, which was an amazing game. And, you know, when else ever will get to beat your local rivals in the most expensive match in football? That is not any, not many clubs can even say that. Like you look at championship playoff finals, not many have been derbies. Um, so that was pretty magic because a lot was on the line that day. Like losing to Brentford was not an option. Um, <laughs> just that kind of, and maybe as a Liverpool fan, there's harder to, Liverpool and Tranmere is not a direct comparison because Tranmere are smaller than Brentford and Liverpool are a lot bigger than Fulham. But it was that kind of like, no 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 you do not beat us in the biggest game of your lives right yeah. <laughs> um and obviously it's so so sad we couldn't be there in person but it was still a pretty magic day whatever so three games um the first one i've gone for is uh fulham to derby county nil which was the playoff semi-final in 2018 yeah we then went on to the final and won it one nil and you might think like well, why didn't you go to the fight why didn't you go for the final but the derby game felt bigger because there was this hoodoo over Fulham that we'd not been to Wembley since 1975. We'd still not been to the new Wembley and we were one of the like kind of biggest 
asked teams to not ever make it to New Wembley. Um, and if, and also we had this kind of playoff curse going back years and years and years that we'd never won a playoff game. And we were 1-0 down after the first leg and really fearing the worst. We played brilliantly up until that point. We deserved to get promoted that year. We got a, a huge amount of points to only finish in third place. Um, but we kind of were like, oh, here we go again. But there was something magical about the cottage that night. It was one of those beautiful, balmy kind of May evenings where you were there in a T-shirt and shorts. And <laughs> we won 2-0 and it was Savisi Kanovic's young side that, that won it and it was just incredible the elation a pitch invasion at craven cottage they don't happen too often and there's a sense of relief that we did it it felt like a massive massive kind of moment for the club to get to wembley to kind of break the playoff curse um just to, and 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 we were really proud of that team as well and of kind of like ryan sessignon was the star and he scored that night as well for us just 18 years old and it was a real coming of age moment, I think, for him as well in his career. So, yeah, that was just utterly magic. And one of those nights that I just never, like, the cottage was loud that night. And it, it was just awesome. Uh, my second game, this is very much a game that probably won't even be in the memory of most Fulham fans. Um, we beat Man City 2 1 away in 2006. And <laughs> It was at the City of Manchester Stadium and Fulham had gone this horrible run. It put real in our kind of like mediocre Premier League years. Um, we hadn't won an away game all season, but we won so many at home that we were pretty comfortable 13th, 14th. And um, my dad was supposed to take me to the game. I was maybe only 13, 14 at the time. And my dad had to go on a late business trip um, that weekend and meant, I couldn't go and I was gutted. And I, this was the kind of time when mum and dad were saying like, you can go to like one away game a season. Um, and I was gutted. It was like third, second to last away game of the year. And I was so excited, been excited for months. So my mum took me <laughs> because I think she could see that I was really, really sad to not go. And we were one nil down and it just looked like another, oh, here we go again. And um, Fulham scored two goals in the last five minutes of the game. Uh, Steve Malbronk and Collins John. And just the elation. I was on top of the world. It was a nothing game. It was been like last on match of the day. It was like ninth v 13th. It meant nothing to anyone. But we were just so delighted that we actually weren't like the first team in Premier League history to not win an away game and just to win it the way we did. And um, I was in the front row and the goals were in front of us. My mum was so nervous. She hates football because it's just so tense. And for both goals, she's just stood there like with her like head in her hands. I'm like, mum, we scored. We scored. She's got, and she's like, oh, this is we? She was like, you could see me both times for both celebrations having to go to my mum. Like, I'm not celebrating. I'm going like, mum, mum, we scored. Brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that was her first and I think last ever away game uh, for, probably for the reason that she just didn't spend the whole time watching it she just spent the whole time she just couldn't look because she just gets too nervous uh, the final one I know I mentioned it earlier but yeah beating Juventus 4-1 at the cottage um, days like that just don't really happen to many clubs let alone clubs like Fulham you know we were 4-1 down in the game um, the team had uh, David Trezeguet Cannavaro Del Piero, Zabina, the the talent in that squad, apart from Buffon, it was a full strength Juventus team that night. And 
a team consisting of Paul Koncheski, John Pantsil, Bobby Zamora, Dixon the Two Who were able to come down from 4-1 down to win 5-4 on aggregate. And the way that Dempsey chipped it into the net for the final goal was just magic and was just stay with you forever. It was just one of those games that never leaves you. And I don't think ever can be topped. I don't know how you, how can you top coming from 4-1 down against Juventus? I don't think it's possible. I mean, maybe we could win 4-0 at the Bernabeu. And, and even then, I don't know if it would... Like, yeah, it was it was a magic night and the one that Fulham fans will always, always return to. And anyone that was lucky enough to be there that night will will never ever forget it. And um small plug of Fulhamish, but um I did a podcast, a kind of documentary on it last year. It was just as we'd gone into lockdown. So we did a documentary of it um to celebrate the 10-year anniversary. Spoke to football journalists like Filippo Clare and just um, lots of different Fulham fans there that night. Got an Italian view on it as well. And it's about half an hour long. And if you want to kind of relive that evening, I, I would really love it if people went and listened back to that podcast because I was so proud of making it. And for me, it was a really nice way of recounting the memories of, of that night. Sounds fantastic. So just before I let you go, mate, I just want to say a massive thank you for giving me your time and coming on. I really do appreciate it. Perfect. It's a great concept of a podcast i think um everyone loves to kind of reminisce about football and and their team and actually you know we we always talk about the latest match with fulham and very rarely do we sit back and kind of talk about old matches with fulham so um yeah delighted to be on and um yeah i can't wait to hear uh, more episodes in the future If you enjoyed that episode and want to keep notified for future episodes, please make sure you subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave us a five-star rating. You can now follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Go In The Match to keep updated for future episodes and updates on the podcast.